There are many things in life that I am very thankful for. I'm thankful for this church family, uh, that we can gather together, that we can uh, share in worship as family, that we can be centered and united around uh, our love for Jesus. I'm thankful for the church throughout the world. I was just uh, this weekend able to go to the Lads to Leaders Conference and see Christians from all over our part of the country. Uh, Over 9,000 of them had gathered together, uh, and uh, they were encouraging the youth and their understanding of God's Word and their leadership and their ability to to lead in worship and in different areas, and it was a wonderful and encouraging and great thing to see. I'm thankful for my faith. I'm thankful for Scripture. I'm thankful for... Uh, a hope that I have that even through the pains of this world, there is something better that God has in store. And when I think of these types of, of blessings, of faith and hope and church family and, and even my understanding of love, these things exist as they do because of an event that happened about 2,000 years ago, about this time of year, which so many people are thinking about today, and which hopefully we're taking some time today to think about, to meditate on, and to worship because of, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We often call it Easter, and there's there's a lot of confusion sometimes about about Easter and about its origins and about uh, uh, when it should be celebrated and all those things. And, and, uh, you know, the English word Easter, uh, it's hard to know exactly where that word came from, but the word Easter in English... um, isn't the same word that was always used to describe this celebration. And it's actually not the word that's used in the vast majority of other languages. Uh, the word that they'll use is something like Pascha, which is Passover. Uh, that's, that's the way that the, the Greek word Passover is used. Um, even if we don't know exactly the origins of the English word Easter, we do know where the origins of this celebration came from. And that started 2,000 years ago with Jesus. That's something that Christians have been celebrating and remembering ever since then. Yes, on the first day of every week, which is essential and crucial. But then also, yes, there are yearly reminders that Christians have engaged in from the earliest days of the church where they remember the world changing on that Passover. The reason we know it's at this time of year is because you can date Jewish Passover. Uh, this, is, this is not like Christmas where we don't actually really know when Jesus was born. You have a pretty good idea of when this happened. This would have been Passover uh, about uh, 2,000 years ago. And uh, it would have been right around this time of year. And the world changed forever that day. When you think about Passover, you're thinking about a story of deep pain and misery, grief and lamentation transformed into a story of victory and joy and hope. Uh, It's a story of people who had been enslaved. Their lives were made wretched and miserable by the powers that be in the world at their time who God heard their cries. He saw their anguish. He saw the death of their children in the Nile. And God sent a deliverer to rescue them out of that bondage, to demonstrate his power over the powers of this world, and to give them freedom and hope for a new age and a new life in the promised land. That is the celebration that is remembered every year, long even before Jesus came in the flesh, that Jews celebrated annually. And it's the celebration during which Jesus made that trip to Jerusalem where he reenacted those same events, where he experienced pain and anguish and death in order to demonstrate the tremendous power of God over the powers of darkness in this world, the powers of God even over death itself through the resurrection. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. There are a few passages I want to look at as we consider what 
the resurrection of Jesus is all about and the transformation that took place in the world that day. To begin, I want to start in John chapter 11 with another resurrection-type moment. Uh, This is the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus is a pivotal moment in the Gospel of John. There have been these signs that Jesus has been performing throughout the book, and you know a lot of them. You know about turning water into wine. That's the first one. And and with each one of these signs, things build, whether it's uh, healing a nobleman's son or whether it's healing a man man at the pool of Bethesda or feeding the 5,000 or walking on the water or giving sight to a blind man or the culmination that all of those have been building to, the raising of Lazarus. Where we find out not only is Jesus the light of the world because he can give life, uh, not only is he the bread of life because uh, he, can, he can give uh, bread literally from heaven, but he is also the resurrection and the life because through him one who has died can find life anew. And the perfect picture of that is a dear friend of Jesus that he loved very much, a man who had grown sick, a man who had grown weak, and a man who had died, and his name is Lazarus. And Jesus arrived several days after the passing of Lazarus, and Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, are, are uh, I think, a little bit upset about that. Uh, they're also heartbroken by that because as much faith as they have in Jesus, they seem to believe that his faith in him can last up to the point of death. Meaning they say to him, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The idea is Jesus has power to heal. Jesus has power to save. Jesus has power to make him better up to the point of death. But death is the end of the story. And I know there's a resurrection at the end of time, but my brother could be alive right now having a meal with us if you had just shown up. And Jesus is aware of that. In John chapter 11 makes the profound point that, yes, Jesus has power up to the point of death and then through death and beyond. Yes, Lazarus died. And Jesus doesn't see that as an insurmountable problem. Jesus can call him forth even still. So when Jesus gets to the tomb, look at John chapter 11 and verse 32. It says, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a tremendous demonstration of faith to say those words. You could have healed him, and I know that you could have because you're powerful, and I believe who you are, and I believe that you're the Son of God. And it's like a tremendous demonstration of faith to say that. But notice it is still limited because it seems to think that his power ends at death. Jesus, in verse 33, says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Now that is a profound moment in John because come and see is is an invitation earlier in John to come and see who Jesus is. Now they are inviting Jesus to come and see where the power of God ends, which is death. And Jesus is going to actually be the one who shows them something far greater. But they say, come and see. Jesus, by seeing the weeping and the mourning and the tears, he's deeply moved within. He's deeply troubled. And as a matter of fact, when they say, come and see, look at verse 35. Kind of a famous verse. Jesus wept. Jesus himself is overcome by the the moment. Jesus is overcome by seeing the sorrow. Jesus is overcome by the loss of someone he loved. As a matter of fact, those tears of Jesus are demonstrating and they're proclaiming loudly the love that he has in his heart for Lazarus. If you look at verse 36, 
So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. When they see the tears of Jesus, it's actually a picture of his love. Jesus' tears demonstrate his love. And I think this is a profound point for us in our world today when we consider grief, when we consider the pain and the loss of a loved one, when we consider lamentation. The story of the Passover begins with grief, pain, loss, tears, death, and lamentation. It begins with God seeing that and God acting upon it towards uh, his people to save them. Like, that's what the Passover is. Here, we see Jesus seeing the pain and the loss of death. He sees the tears and he himself joins in those tears with his people at the loss of Lazarus. We have a rather lengthy list on our announcements that have been read. There are a lot of tears that are being shed right in this room among these very people throughout the week about the loss of loved ones, about the fear of, of sickness, the fear of death, the, the, the anguish and the mourning that takes place when you lose someone that you love. That is still a very real and ever-present uh, reality in our world around us. But just like with Passover, that's part of the story. That's part of the story of human life that we will all experience. That's something we'll all share together. That's something that unites all humans. That's something that Jesus is a part of right here. And the grief that you feel in those moments, just like the tears of Jesus demonstrated his love, that's what grief is. Grief is what you feel when love continues on after death. Uh, I, I, there's a, it's, it's from uh, one of the Marvel movies, but there's... Uh, a sentence that's uttered that I, that I really like, that it says, what is grief if not love persevering? You know, there, there are people who die every day around the world. There are people who are dying today in the other parts of the world that I don't know those people. I've never met them. And as wonderful as they may be, I'm not really grieving because I don't, I don't know them. <laughs> grief affects us when it's the continuation of love for a person. Grief is the shadow side of love. It's like love has many facets, and there's many aspects of love that we like to see and talk about. We love the closeness. We love the intimacy. We love time and uh, shared with one another. We love gifts. We love sacrifice. Those are all parts of love that we can see, but there's other parts of love that aren't so pleasant to talk about, and grief is one of them. Grief is what love looks like after the experience of loss. Grief is not the loss of love. Grief is love transformed anew, and Jesus is experiencing that right now. But how does this story end with Lazarus? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. And that grief that they're experiencing is transformed again into hope. It's like love is transformed into grief, which is transformed into life and hope and freedom and victory and goodness. And there's able to be celebration in that moment. Look with me at John chapter 16. This is another pivotal passage as we move in the story closer to the the death of Jesus. In John chapter 16, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the events that are coming in just a short period of time. I mean, right after the raising of Lazarus, we are told now that final Passover is coming. There are three Passovers in the gospel of John. The final one is where Jesus uh, undergoes his crucifixion and resurrection. And so now we're actually counting days to get to that point. And when you get to John chapter 16, Jesus is gathered with his disciples And he's preparing them for this moment. And it says in verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. So Jesus had said to them, Look, in a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. 
And then a little while after that, you'll see me again. And they don't know what he's talking about. And so Jesus is going to uh, explain it, as he often does in somewhat cryptic language. But in verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But you will grieve, yet your grief will be turned into joy. That's the story of the Passover, where Egypt rejoiced at at their power, at their dominance, at their own might. And the children of Israel grieved and suffered under the hands of their oppressors. But God saw their grief. And through the story of Exodus, through the story of Passover, through the plagues, through the passing of the Red Sea, through the promised land, they were able to have that grief turned in, transformed into joy. And Jesus is saying that same pattern is about to take place again. He he describes it with another illustration in verse 21. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. He says, think of the moments that are about to happen, like the pains of a childbirth that are followed by the joy of holding a newborn child. There is pain and there is anguish. There is, there is misery in that moment. I saw it. It's not pleasant. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough moment. I didn't experience it, but I saw it. Um, but shortly after that, when you actually are seeing new life, when you're seeing a child for the first time that you've been longing to see, when you begin to hold that child, the pain isn't so much what is your primary focus anymore. It's been transformed into love in a new and amazing way. Jesus says that's what's about to happen in this world. That's what's about to happen with us. Uh, In verse 22, Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. This is a good story. Um, We live in a world where it's easy to forget that there's goodness in store, where we think that grief may be what defines us. And yet the story of Christianity is that we don't go to honor the tomb where Jesus is buried. We remember an empty tomb where Jesus is no longer there because the story doesn't end in death. We like to think of this world as as we have life and life ends in death. But the story of Christianity is that you have death And death ends in life. And that life is forevermore. That life is eternal. That life is victorious and unbreakable through the power of Jesus. After Jesus was arrested and the world was covered in darkness, after he was killed and sin reached its highest point in this world, Jesus was laid in a tomb. Jesus was buried. And Jesus rested on the Sabbath day, awaiting the light of a new world on Sunday morning. As the sun began to rise in the darkness of this world, as the grief and the lamentation that had been heard for days leading up to this reached its pivotal moment and women came to the tomb, that's when they discovered that the world would never be the same again. The power of God had raised Jesus from the dead. And in that moment, there was confusion There was doubt. There was fear. There was every kind of emotion imaginable swirling among the disciples. And yet Jesus appeared to them. And when he appeared, he says three times something that I hope we'll all take with us from this lesson. In John chapter 20 and verse 19, 
We're going to see some of the, the state of the disciples after the resurrection. And it wasn't always just cheers and hope and great. They didn't understand yet. They were still quite confused about what all of this meant. And right here, they're hiding because of fear. When you look at verse 19, it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Notice the transformation of fear and hiding to joy and rejoicing. And what happened in the middle there? Jesus came bringing peace. You continue on the very next verse, verse 21. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And through that peace and through that joy, he commissions them to go out and to live a new kind of life, a life defined by that type of peace that you have through the knowledge of God's victory over death. That transforms the way that you now live. And he's going to send them on a mission to bring that message to the rest of the world, a world defined by grief and pain and lamentation so that he can bring joy to it. And as this message is is being revealed to the disciples, one of them is not there. That is Thomas. Uh, Thomas gets a bad rap because of this, uh, because he wasn't part of this meeting. And so all the other disciples believe, and yet he doesn't believe. Well, like 10 minutes earlier, they didn't really believe either. Uh, so some of them did, if you, if you read the whole story. But, but you'll see there's a lot of confusion and doubt until they see Jesus. Well, Thomas isn't there. But here's the thing about Thomas. Thomas, just like everyone else, didn't expect the Messiah to come to be killed, and to rise from the dead. That wasn't part of Jewish eschatological hope. That wasn't part of Jewish messianic expectation. Like, that wasn't part of the worldview of the Jewish people when they considered their Messiah. They considered a Messiah who would come in and destroy their enemies and give them great victory. They didn't expect a Messiah to come and to be killed by Rome and then to be placed in a tomb dead. And so when that happens, that means, oh, we've probably wasted a couple years of our lives looking at the wrong Messiah. This isn't the only messianic type of movement that happened among the Jews at this time period. There were other ones on both sides of it, earlier and after it. And you know what generally happened when you had a movement that got some steam? Rome would come in and they would say, enough of that, and they'd kill the people who were a part of it. And they would crucify them, they would execute them, they'd put a stop to it. And you know what? Rome was pretty powerful. There wasn't much you could do about it. And do you know what those who were part of the movement, who survived, then did? They either gave up on the movement and quietly went back to their lives, hoping no one ever associated with them with it. Or they found themselves a new leader and said, all right, now you're the one who's in charge. Like historically, this is what they would do. You know what's unique about Christianity? Is they, for some reason, changed their entire view of the Messiah after the crucifixion. They changed their entire view of eschatology. They changed their religious beliefs. They made Sunday a holy day of worship. They started baptizing people as a picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus because they were just as shocked by the resurrection as anybody. It doesn't take a scientist to know that people who die don't come back from the dead. Like people who act like, well, Back then, people believed in myths like resurrection, but now we know. Look, back then, they knew that dead people stayed dead too. What happened in this moment was a profoundly shocking, unexpected, unanticipated moment when Jesus was seen alive on the first day of the week. And it transformed his disciples into a people who now believe in the hope of the resurrection of the Messiah and that we've entered into the time period of resurrection of which we will all one day become a part also. 
It changed everything. And it changed everything because they weren't expecting it. It wasn't part of the story that they had. And so when this becomes part of the story, it changes them. But until they see the resurrected Jesus, like Thomas, they doubt. Of course they doubt. I mean, this wasn't what, I mean, read the Old Testament. There's no clear verse that says the Messiah is going to be killed and raised again. Uh, And so they had to kind of reread the Old Testament after these events and try to see, was there stuff that we missed? Or how how did this happen? Uh, It was a transformative, wild experience. Well, Thomas isn't at that point yet. Thomas is still doubting. And so when Jesus appears, look at verse 26. After eight days... His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, he stood in the midst, and he says, this is the third time, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here and put your hand in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. I mean, what else can you say? Uh... Grief, pain, death, fear, doubt. These are all obstacles that Jesus met with peace and he overcame with life. And it's the hope that he gives each of us. Do we have grief now? Yes, that's a part of the story. But that grief doesn't end in grief. The despair doesn't end with misery and sorrow and loss. The death and the pain that we experience in this life now is transformed. We're able to have peace now, and then we experience the joy of that grief being turned into something much greater. We, the loss and the lamentation is turned into rejoicing, the doubt is turned into belief, and death is turned into life. That's the story of the good news of Jesus that takes a world of death and turns it into a world of light and life. It's a story that I'm very, very thankful for, and it's a story that I hope we think about today and every Lord's Day and every day of our lives. It's a story I hope we remember when we're experiencing loss. It's a story that I hope gives us peace in times of fear and pain and doubt. And it's a story I hope transforms each and every one of us, not only now, but each day throughout our lives as we hopefully expect and long for that day when the bodies that we now live in will be glorified as the body of our Lord Jesus was. If we can help you become part of that story, you can reenact it right here this morning through a death with Christ in baptism and a resurrection out of the water to new life and life eternal. If we can help you do that, you can talk to some of our elders in the back or you can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.